You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back at you with a, another edition, of course, of Connecting the Universe. I just introduced that. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to be talking about world connections to ancient Egypt. I will say for those that have attended the live stream this evening through the Connected Universe portal, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter class. And that's just because it's been a crazy week. It has been an absolutely crazy week. I know many of you think that I uh, do all of this full time. I actually do hold down a day job. That has been absolutely nuts this week, as well as all the preparations and everything I'm doing to get ready to go to Egypt, which is a lot. And of course, all the other things that I do to keep up with Connecting the Universe, Connected Universe Portal, all of the social media, all those wonderful things. It's a lot of work. It is It is a second full-time job, really. And, of course, the bigger projects behind the scenes, like Shadow Dimension Season 2, the new book, all of those things. Not to mention Shadow Dimension is now on Roku Channel. All of that said, for those, again, watching the live stream, this will be a little bit shorter. For those listening to the podcast version later, whether that's on UnX Network, which UnX, we are now Saturday nights, 9 p.m. So if you guys are tuning in at 11 p.m. that night, we're now two hours earlier, 9 p.m. KPNL, KGRA, any of the uh, regular podcast platforms like iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, iTunes, any of that. You will get the full hour. What I'm going to do is we do have other related material, such as uh, connections, Egypt connections to Ireland, Egypt connections to Atlantis, uh, a lot of the Stargate material, Egypt connections to Antarctica and Alaska. Go figure that. So I'll go ahead and include those in the audio podcast version. And also for those listening to the podcast version later, I do ask you, to uh, come and join us every Wednesday night here at 8 o'clock p.m. Uh, you will get the full live version of this show with the videos, slide presentation, all that wonderful stuff. Tons of other material on the back end of the site, too. All kinds of other videos, video blogs, articles, and that's ConnectedUniversePortal.com. All right. Enough of all that. Tonight's Connecting the Universe class question. What do you find to be the most fascinating connection back to ancient Egypt? So we had uh, Sally Kirchhoff, who um, used to know way back in the Maryland days. She says, I have always been fascinated by the fact that way back then they built the pyramids, which was an impossible feat. But then we also have found that they are in different places all over the world even something that appears to be pyramids on Mars. And yeah, that's a, a really fascinating aspect. And something I really I did want to get into this evening uh, was pointing out a lot of the similarities between different pyramids around the world, such as like the Step Pyramid to Chichen uh, Itza. Uh, you have, you know, these different formations. I was going to get into like the Black Pyramid in Antarctica a little bit. And, you know, that, the one in Antarctica looks well like the great pyramid of giza or the red pyramid and the red pyramid is and that looks very similar to the great pyramid as well just a lot smaller 
so you have these very similar uh, types of things. And pyramids really come in all different shapes and forms and sizes, but they are all over the world. And it does beg us the question, you know, what was the fascination with, with this shape that the ancients continued to build it and build it and build it? But they did. Uh, that was something that they were really in tune to. And so you know, whether it was trying to reach up to the heavens, uh, there's a lot of different theories and ideas, and most of them well, turn out to be wrong. And I'm not going to get into the different theories of the Great Pyramid this evening, but uh, yeah, the idea that it was a tomb, no, 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 definitely not a tomb. All right, what we are going to talk about in the live version of this this evening is some Egyptian connections I've not talked about before. And, oh yeah, that was the nice graphic for the class question. I actually like that one. That one came up pretty nice. But uh, we're going to talk about the Egyptian connections to, I will say, Southeast Asia. I'm going to play a video clip here from Muhammad from Hatshepsut's Temple. And yes, normally when I play a clip regarding Muhammad from Hatshepsut's Temple, it's regarding Stargates. This doesn't have to do with Stargates, although it is related to travel to very distant lands. And so we'll discuss after we get done with, with this clip. Of the Egyptian visit to Bont land. And they show us here that the... Uh, but this is the replica. We're going to see the original at the Egyptian Museum. This is the leader or the chief or the mayor of Pontland, okay, and his wife. And they show his wife in a strange character, like a, a very fatty woman, but overweight. Like, so we don't know if this was a message to start try to find a certain type of people who had this look, or she just a fat lady. <laughs> but my guessing, no, they are trying to send us a message that maybe there is a, a group of people had this type of look. Okay? So here are the uh, hut houses or the huts of this area with the coconut trees. Coconut trees, the, everything here is a message in my opinion. So we must find a country with coconut trees. Okay? And this level is water, but not river not fresh water it has hundreds of types of fish with uh, or from the sea uh, level sea water let's start with a very strange fish this what we call it the balloon fish that fish will a puffer fish puffer fish called what puffer fish puffer puffer yeah okay and they're poisonous uh, yes. poison if you eat them yes puffer fish a strange fish with two antennas yeah. Okay. We have lobster. Okay. And we have up there uh, something like uh, we had stingray fish. Here it is there. Can you see it? Stingray. Yeah. With that long tail. Yes. And that fish is very strange with their white eyes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. And stingray fish again. So this is when they're in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. So that is why, where is uh, Johnny? Johnny! Not here. Johnny escaped. This is one of the main evidence I used to connect between Egypt and Australia because this is, could be the Egyptian fleet crossing the Red Sea, heading to the Pacific Ocean, and from the Pacific Ocean to Australia. Something else, when we talk about gum trees, those are for the... What is the, uh, the famous uh, Australian liquid? Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. Yeah. So that is going to be a eucalyptus tree. Okay. Or something we call it gum tree. This is what I'm talking about. We, we need a, a specialist. We need someone expert on those stuff. We don't need historians to tell us what happened. Historians will tell us the story, okay, but I need a specialist. I need a zoologist. To tell us about the animals. Look, this is a, a giraffe here. So also we need to find a country with a giraffe. Okay? okay. Here can you see the big legs? That could be a neem tree. 
Mm -hmm. Neem. Neem, this three? Yeah. Okay. Very beneficial. So we have giraffe, we have lions. So maybe also we are talking about South Africa. Yeah. And, and that journey could be to multiple countries, not necessarily one country. Because guess what? They say Bolt land is Somalia. Okay, so that's the the a bit of Puntland that's there on the temple of uh, Hatshepsut, the Hatshepsut Mortuary Temple. And uh, Sarah is in the house. Great to see you. She says it's interesting how Egyptian technology seemed to penetrate other cultures through their architecture, medical knowledge, etc. Absolutely. And what's interesting about Puntland. And like what Mohammed was saying at the end, there could be multiple countries from a, an extensive journey because uh, a lot of the the things there on the wall just don't line up, like the different animals, the different plants, these sorts of things. So where did they go? Uh, he kind of misspoke when he said through the Red Sea to Pacific Ocean, it's the Indian Ocean. And whether or not they went to Australia, we shall see. And there's and there's Sally. Hi, Sally. I, I read your comments a little bit ago about the uh, the pyramids. So it's good to see you down there. And what's interesting about what they're showing on the wall um, is there is absolutely no way that the conventional theory of Punt is where they said it is. And what I mean is let's bring up the map. So this is the land of Punt, at least where they believe it had been. Now that would be mainstream traditional archeology. span uh, Right there across the uh, Red Sea from Arabia, basically the Southern end of Egypt, which that would have been Upper Egypt. I know it's to the South, but would, Southern Egypt would be Upper Egypt. Just below that, a couple of issues, a couple of problems with that sort of thing. Now, he was talking about, um, you know, like some of the giraffes, uh, baboons, things like this. Not really in that area area of Africa. Okay. But what's even more troubling with that, with the land of Punt, are the coconut trees. Coconut trees are not indigenous to Africa. And there are Af there are coconut trees in Africa now, but they had not been definitely back at, at that time and they are not in the land in question. So uh, we see coconut trees in Madagascar. We see uh, coconut trees basically kind of through the, the middle now. But here's the thing. Hatshepsut's temple, now Hatshepsut herself, reigned about 1478 to 1458 BC, okay? Coconuts were first domesticated by Austronesian peoples in the uh, in Southeast Asian islands, so like Malaysia. Uh, well, I'm going to bring up the map here, and you can see for yourself. And it's a little spread out, and I probably should have zoomed in on it a little bit or something before I put it up here. But um, if you look all the way over on the left there, they show Madagascar. Now, you can see at the very upper left corner there where the land of Punt would be, right? So let me bring that back up, compare it to this map. So Madagascar is quite a ways south from there. But also look at the date of that migration. It's about 500 AD. So that is almost a 2,000-year difference between when the coconut trees were put on the wall here at Hatshepsut's temple, when coconuts made their way to Africa and not even a part of Africa in which the land of Punt would have been. So this is just another one of those examples of the, 
traditional history, traditional archaeology, just not really corresponding with other areas and aspects of our natural world. And that's what Muhammad was saying there toward the end. Hey, you know, get me a zoologist, you know, get me, get me a biologist, some, you know, uh, or a botanist, you know, get me somebody who has, you know, the know-how in these other areas to help fill in the pieces of that story. Because what you're trying to say here does not jive with, with what's on the wall in the temple. So, um, all right. Well, and, and that's the thing, Sarah. Coconuts could have been transplanted as a gift from a, from a foreign entity. That is how they traveled across. That is how they got there to uh, Madagascar to begin with. And they have, they have tracked that during that time frame, back in AD. Um, here, I'll just, here's a quote specifically. Uh, the distribution of the Pacific coconuts correspond to the region settled by Austrian Austronesian voyagers, indicating that its spread was largely the result of human introductions. It is most strikingly displayed in Madagascar, an island settled by Austronesian sailors around 2000 to 1500 BP or before present. So that would be um, around 500 AD to maybe as early as zero, but um, but no further back. You're still talking a discrepancy of 2000 to 1500 years. Now there is another, there is another way it could have happened. And I was reminded of this last night. <laughs> I was trying when when I'm working on stuff. A lot of times I'll put on like just some some background noise, and um, I usually choose something I've watched a million times, uh, and maybe even you know maybe a million times recently, so that it's not distracting. Well, I put on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was distracting because I have not seen it for a while. And um, well, this is what could have happened with the coconuts. You know, tie it to a swallow and uh, and have it fly off because you know how they get the coconuts up there uh, for for King Arthur, right? <laughs> All right. Now, there are some uh, questions about whether there's a tie-in between uh, ancient Egypt and Australia, and that's come via the uh, the hieroglyphs that have been found there. Uh, in Australia, which largely have been debunked. Uh, I know that you know, a lot of people would, would like to say that they are real, but the problem is the weathering, uh, it's sandstone that they're carved into, which would be a much easier stone to, to carve those things into. But it's exposed to the elements. And so the amount of weathering that would have to take place for those carvings uh, just does not correspond with how long ago it would have to be. So that's that's really uh, the main detriment to those carvings that have been found there in Australia. I mean, I think everybody would like love for them to be uh, legitimate, but they would either one have to be in a place that wasn't exposed like it is, uh, or two have to be weathered down a lot more and they're just and they're just not unfortunately. But if somebody else can come back with a uh, with a counter-argument, I would be happy to listen to it uh, because you know, I think we don't give credit to our you know, ancient sailors that, you know, the distances that they were able to travel because we are finding more and more and more, like here in the Americas, older and older and older peoples that had actually lived here, you know, dating back to now, it, it was supposed to be that we came across or the, the peoples here came across the Bering Land Bridge. And then once the ice sheets started to melt, filtered down into the Americas about uh, 15, 16,000 years ago. However, the problem with that is they have been finding peoples in South America going back as far as 40,000 years. They have found in the San Diego area, 120,000 years ago. So something just doesn't jive there. How did the people come across? How did they end up at Easter Island? That sort of thing. They had to have had some sort of seafaring vessel to get them there. 
So the idea of ancient Egyptians making it across to Australia somehow, I don't think it's unheard of. They were better, I will say this, they were better river sailors, or at least uh, known as better river sailors than, uh, than deeper and bigger seas. And yes, they had the Red Sea there, they had the Mediterranean Sea there, but they weren't really known as the strongest seafarers in that sort of waters. But the Nile, absolutely, which is a, when you see a lot of the uh, Egyptian mythology and a lot of their iconography, you see a lot of usage of boats. Uh, so they were a seafaring people. What's well, interesting, going on about uh, Australia a little bit here, is we do actually see in the Egyptian museum, there are ancient Egyptian boomerangs, which we largely associate with Australia. So it does beg the question, you know, if there was some sort of voyage or uh, you know, large expedition eastward toward that area of the world, did they inherit and trade some of this technology back and forth with the peoples of that area of the world? It does cause us to question that. Not saying these are Australian boomerangs. These are these are definitely Egyptian boomerangs, but uh, it's it's knowledge that could have been transferred and could have passed over. See some comments down in here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Sarah. I think they use them to make horsey noises. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in Monty Python, uh, and yeah. Absolutely. Aboriginal people of Australia have a lot of similarities with the Egyptians. The, they, they really do. And uh, it was something that I was looking to get more into uh, with this particular class this evening. Um, but like I said at the at the beginning, and Sarah, I, I don't think you and Sally had been in here yet uh, into the chat, but we are cutting the live stream short because of the way my week went. And really, I just got done with the day job, not even two hours ago. So I didn't have enough time to get everything uh, together. So what's going to end up happening is when we cut this off, then for the podcast audio version later, I'm going to splice in some other stuff when we've talked about Ireland. And uh, I just posted that video on the uh, the YouTube channel, the Mike Ricksecker YouTube channel with the connections between Egypt and Ireland. Uh, which is uh, really, really interesting. And uh, yes, we could do a whole other show uh, on that. So, and and we can, we absolutely can. That was my intention for tonight. I mean, I had a whole list here of uh, Egypt to Australia, Egypt to Ireland, which uh, again, on the YouTube channel, I was going to kind of recap some of that for this because uh, we covered that um, probably a year and a couple of months ago. Uh, Egypt to the Americas, you do see a lot of influence here in America. I know we talked pyramids, but even when you look at uh, you know some of the mound building and the astronomical alignments, when you look at some of the ceremony and worship, uh, you see that there are a lot of similarities to ancient Egypt. I know when we've talked uh, about shadow entities and the Egyptians having multiple parts of the soul, and one of those parts being a a shadow, what they called the uh, the K bit. Well, there are many Native American cultures that actually have that as well. Multiple parts of the soul, one of those being the shadow that's left to roam here around on Earth after death. So there are a lot of those very very interesting connections, and then like with uh, Sally's comments at the beginning about the uh, pyramids. Of course, we were going to go ahead and uh, and get into that as well because we see those different formations all over the world in a lot of different types of construction. You know, whether it is our traditional pyramids like you see on the Giza Plateau, whether it's the step pyramids like something like Saqqara uh, or Chichen Itza or some of these, uh, you know, uh, Teotihuacan kind of has uh, that as well. And uh, then you look at uh, Gudempadayang in uh, in Indonesia, where, you know, that is 
it's still technically a pyramid, even though it's like the columnar uh, uh, basaltic formations, but the way they stack that up is still technically a pyramid. So really, really interesting stuff that you see all over the world. And, uh, and yeah, the obelisks as well, obelisk shapes show up in uh, Freemasonry. They show up, those are another one that show up all over the world. Uh, when you look at, um, well, going back to that Ireland video, the longer form of that, what I pointed out was that it is also in the, in the shape of an obelisk. And this is on the uh, Hill of Terra in Ireland, which <laughs> I was sick and couldn't get to because uh, I wanted to get my own photo of that. I had to use stock photo. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we see different obelisks like that you know, all over the world. And of course, you know, right in downtown Washington, D.C., we have the Washington Monument, which is a uh, giant obelisk. So those are everywhere. Um, if you guys have any uh, additional questions, go ahead, throw them down there in the chat. Uh, otherwise, we'll go ahead and start wrapping up the uh, live version of this this evening. Uh, and we will definitely revisit all of this when we come back from Egypt. You know, the way that is going to work is basically the next two weeks, we're not going to have the live class, but I will be posting a lot of material on the back end within ConnectedUniversePortal.com. So in the member area, be on the lookout for within the uh, Egypt video blog uh, section, which has, well, there's like over 12 hours worth of video back there. Uh, so you can uh, keep an eye out for that. I'll probably put some uh, behind the scenes and sneak peek videos out there from some of the different things going on within the travel. So definitely stay tuned to uh, all of that because I will be updating as we go along. And of course, Facebook, Instagram, posting all kinds of photos and, and things like that as well, uh, as far as social media. And uh, yes, absolutely. Definitely eat some some good food. Uh, you know, Jen was asking me about the food. I keep trying to tell her it's really, really flavorful. I really enjoyed the food over there. I just, the last time I got dehydrated, so I just wasn't drinking enough water. And so uh, food by the end, I still really enjoyed, but was having a hard time with it, but just because I was you know, way too dehydrated. But we also went right in the middle of June toward the end of the month, Ireland and Egypt. There are a number of different things that, uh, that connect these two. And we're going to kind of work our way back little by little. And I say little by little, but we're taking a big jump to start. That's a good 1200 years into the past. And that entails this object here, which in 2006, it was discovered in a peat bog. It's an ancient book. It was found in Fadden Moor of Counting Tipperary, made of papyrus with an Egyptian-style leather cover. So just for starters, how close is to the, how close is this to where we're going to be this coming summer, July? Well, Counting Tipperary is where uh, Rocket Cashel is, and Cahir Castle, both of which we're going to. So we won't be going to the peat bog. It's actually private property. Uh, but they were doing some, some digging there, uh, basically peat uh, moss farming. And I, I'm not sure exactly what that's used for. I'm not an agriculturalist. But uh, in the digging, in the excavations that had been done there, they discovered this book, which actually... About six years beforehand, there was a leather satchel there found as well. And many people believe that the two are, are connected. That maybe even the satchel held this book uh, because of, you know, the, you know, the, the type of, um, what do I want to say here? Because of the type of situation that's involved. And we'll, we'll get into that here. So what is this thing? So this is actually a... Uh, what they call a Psalter. So it's basically a book of Psalms. Here it is when they found it in the mud. And then when they cleaned it up a little bit, uh, you can see the writing here on the pages. It's actually in Latin. 
the dating of this book, like I said, this dates back about 1,200 years. So it was written in about 800 AD. Again, it's a collection of Psalms, and only about 15% is actually readable. I'll go ahead and throw, throw up a page here. This is most of, well, two pages that they were able to retrieve from it. But you can see from this other photo here that it's in, uh, you know, it's in pretty bad shape. So, okay, so this thing, it's written on papyrus. It has a Egyptian-style leather cover. How did, and it's written in Latin. So how did something that has connections to Egypt written in Latin uh, get out here to, to Ireland? Um, we'll get into that in a second here. Uh, what's interesting, though, because I said that there's a situation here with the uh, with the actual book itself and the satchel that it may have been in. So bogs at that time, again, we're talking 800 AD, uh, were used often by Irish monks as hiding places for valuable uh, for valuables for from uh, the Viking raids that were going on at the time. So. You know, Vikings would come into a village, they'd be raiding it. The monks want to preserve their history, their legacy, and so they would hide it in the bog. That may sound crazy, but there's actually some science behind this, even though they probably didn't realize what it was. But they knew enough that the bog would actually preserve it. So what happens is, uh, within the bog, it has low oxygen conditions conditions. Uh, so the oxygen is not getting down into there to basically break down the, uh, you know, the papyrus and, and the leather and all that. There's also that type of moss that's there. You can kind of see on the edges of the, the photo here, the moss. Uh, it's, it's sphagnum moss. And it's a specific type of moss that creates an environment that's almost impervious to rot. Uh, sounds kind of crazy, but it's true. So you can actually hide things in this bog and they're going to be relatively okay. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, much of that text is gone and is missing, you know, because it is, you know, muddy conditions. So it's almost kind of like two forces battling each other. Part of it wants to break it down. Another part wants to preserve it. The leather was at least preserved pretty well. And they got 15% of the text, which isn't too bad considering it's been over a thousand years. So what's the connection to Egypt here? How did this book get there? Well, this connection, at least this one that we're talking about now, goes back to the Coptic church. So what's the Coptic church? Basically, these are your Egyptian Christians. So Egyptian or a Christian church that uh, was developed in Egypt and still exists to this day. So we actually, uh, when we were out in Egypt this past June, we got to visit one of these, and it's a Coptic cave church. Uh, really, really beautiful. And uh, they have a very, very rich history. They actually carved this church out of the rock uh, here you see some of the photos of the uh, the pulpit area. You know, they have this uh, those those windows that are back there actually are out of the cliff. So when you look through there, you, you're looking like hundreds of feet below, and you're overlooking the city of Cairo. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. So this is kind of on the outskirts of Cairo. And then they have all these uh, amazing sculptures here. These are done by a, a Polish uh, sculptor. So I see you guys have some comments in here. We'll get to uh, uh, what you're commenting here. Yes, Tom, you are able to comment now. <laughs> so and you're asking, do you think they really want to preserve the book? Well, if they're being raided, yeah, that would be something that they would want to preserve and maybe whoever put it there couldn't get back to it. You know, uh, we don't know what may have happened. If it was a raid, you know, kind of speculation. Uh, but apparently that was a practice back then that if the town was being raided, they would hide things in the bog. And it could be that, you know, the person that hit it, that particular monk, 
maybe he got killed during the raid. Maybe when he went back to go to try to find it, he couldn't. So, um, yeah, and then the satchel is that speculation too, whether or not the two were connected. They were, they were around the same time, but anything could have been in the satchel and that book may not have been in one. And, but you know, only 300 feet apart and things shift over time. So, uh, and then Sarah's asking, connections be made, continental drift. Well, we kind of covered that the other week, but uh, if we have time, then uh, we can get back to that. So the method they use for dating, was, there's going to be uh, carbon-14 dating for that. Uh, you, know, you're, you're, you have all kinds of organics there. So, so the Coptic Church is actually quite important. So... Uh, you had the cops that were basically proselytizing there in uh, in Ireland, developing churches and connecting there with the uh, with the Christians, with the monks there in Ireland. It's a it's a very interesting connection. But what we can also attribute to the cops is they have some credit here with the Rosetta Stone. We're not going to spend too much time on this. We, we could spend an entire class on the Rosetta Stone. But they were very instrumental in helping to decipher this and bring us the hieroglyphs today. You know, we without them, we would we would not have translated this. So very, very quickly, when you look at the Rosetta Stone, you see the top there is those are the hieroglyphs. The next layer is demotic. What demotic was was basically like the daily usage Egyptian script. Uh, it's kind of like their everyday language, you know, kind of their shorthand, basically like our printing uh, sort of thing. And then below is Greek. So when they found the Rosetta Stone, they could read the Greek, but they weren't sure what was going on with the hieroglyphs. That was a that was a dead language for a long, long time. Uh, because the Coptic language, what that is, is basically a version of the ancient Egyptian language. Now, they wrote it out differently, but the pronunciations were essentially, they weren't identical. It's never going to be precisely identical. Um, the way things are pronounced, it's, it's like we believe this is the way it was pronounced. Um, you know, everything lines up between the Coptic language and the Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, as far as like the meaning, you know, and we know most of it, but the way it's pronounced, it's like, you know, I took some courses in hieroglyphs uh, before I went to Egypt and even the instructors are like, well, this is the way we believe it was pronounced. Uh, you know, ancient, the ancient Egyptian language didn't have vowels, so like, you know, these are kind of the letters that are going together. This is the way it's supposed to kind of be pronounced. And you're talking about a language that would have been developed over thousands of years. So it's going to be a bit different. You know, you take our, you know, our old English from you know, several hundred years ago. You know, we're talking, okay, in uh, Ireland there uh, in 800 A.D. You know, you think about people that are speaking, well, they would have spoken Gaelic in, in Ireland, but you take the UK at that time, the English that would have been around there at that time. You, if you were to go back then and try to speak English to those guys, they're not going to understand you and you're not going to understand them because the dialect changed over the years. Another good example would be like the movie Stargate, which actually uses uh, Egyptian. Uh, Egyptian, The, the way uh, James Spader's character is trying to talk to them it doesn't come out right. It's not until he gets down into the uh, into the written record room, or it wasn't really tombs. It was just kind of passages with written records. And he's talking to the girl, and discovers that you know it's they're the same words, but it's pronounced a little differently. And so that may be what we're we're dealing with. But Coptic is what was used to uh, help translate uh, the the Rosetta Stone. So I just wanted to hit that real quick. 
which maybe that wasn't real quick, but uh, just give you some background of the importance of the the Coptics and the Coptic Christians. So let's keep going here because there are other connections here between Ireland and Egypt in some of the uh, the more interesting tales. I mean, these are great artifacts we're finding from 800 A.D., hope to find some more there may be more out there they do find in these bogs uh, some interesting interesting artifacts uh, but there are stories about visits to ireland by by the seven monks of egypt and what they called the desert fathers or the desert monks uh, these are these are monks that came from egypt and visited ireland long long ago so we're going to talk about an individual named Angus the Coldy. So where a lot of this information comes from, um, comes from Archdale King. He was a liturgical historian. And he noted that the links between Celtic Ireland and Coptic Egypt uh, even took place before the Muslim conquest of 640 AD. So that this connection was established, you know, even more than, than 1,200 years ago, which was what we were talking about with that Psalter that was found. It's these monks that are believed that this, we'll go back to it here, this Psalter that was found, this leather-bound book that was discovered in the mud that's made out of leather from Egypt, the covers, leather from Egypt, and the... Uh, pages are made out of papyrus. It is believed that this came from these desert monks. So, all right, Mound of Hostages. So our story here starts in 1955 with archaeologist Dr. Sean O. Riordan. Uh, he was a uh, professor at Trinity College in what he discovered here, this is the middle of the archaeological dig, where they're, they're digging down to the, uh, this is a burial mound. And he found there the skeletal remains of a young boy about 15 years old, carbon dated to around 1350 BC. With this boy was a necklace made of faience beads matching the design and manufacture of Egyptian beads. There's also a collar there that matched the collar laid around the neck of Tutankhamun, although I couldn't find that collar. So these here are the beads. And you can see it's uh, put together like a necklace. Some interesting things about the uh, the tomb itself is that the passage has a solar alignment with the cross quarter days so this is february 4th november 8th usually when things have a solar alignment we usually see them as something like a solstice or an equinox or something like that this one's a little bit a little bit interesting where it's a, a cross quarter. so basically between these points so instead of uh basically a cross quarter you know that we would have had in november 8th would have been between the September, the fall equinox, and then the winter solstice. So a little bit different. And then, of course, the uh, the same between the uh, winter solstice and then uh, the spring equinox is, is the other one. So they call that cross-quarter. So a little bit different. Uh, what's also interesting is that the mound is on, you usually see this, it's on an older structure in we don't really know what specifically that older structure would have been used for, except that it was dug out of the actual bedrock. Uh, so it dates back even further than the 1350 BC. Uh, but this particular boy that was discovered there uh, in the beads, this is what Riordan says specifically about the beads. Uh, he says, the terra beads are not made of true faience, which normally has an external colored glaze 
but of a well-known variety of Eastern Mediterranean synthetic material in which powdered blue glass or glaze has been mixed with quartz grains in which after molding has been fired. Such hard glassy faience or varying E of the material has been described by A. Lucas, Ancient Egyptian Materials and Industries, 1948, is well known in Egypt. Uh, he also dates the beads to uh, about 1400 BC by comparison with similar examples from Abydos in Egypt. This is from O'Riordan's paper, A Burial with Faience Beads at Terra from 1956. So that's those are actually his specific words from back then uh, and in the research that, that he had done. So what he's saying here is that the, the beads that were discovered are basically commiserate with that of Eastern Mediterranean. There are some people who hold out and say, well, there's a possibility it could also be from Syria. Uh, but the greater percentage is that it would be from Egypt, and there have been similar beads found uh, near Abydos. Abydos is the temple that has the, uh, you know, what we call uh, like the helicopter and the airplane and all that uh, up on the the one lintel near the ceiling in the temple. Now, we're going to spend some time at Edfu here in this particular episode because Edfu contains the most complete story currently in existence of Zeptepi, again, the first time. And so I have another clip here from uh, from Mohammed with Johnny at Edfu, and then we're going to kind of break some things down here. Right, but here, here's the thing. So remember the lecture that Muhammad gave you guys last night, and he was talking to you about the Atlantis story, where we get it from. We were all discussing this before, right? We think that people think that Atlantis is a Greek story. Mm -hmm. Richard knows this. It's mm -hmm. seen in his eyes. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, is that the Plato, Plato tells us the story that he writes in, you know, we hear about Critias and Tiamias, but his uncle Critias told it to him. Mm -hmm. His uncle Critias got the story from his great-great-great-grandfather, Solon. Mm -hmm. Solon traveled over to Egypt, what it was called Saïs. Mm -hmm. And when he came here, he talked to a priest called Sanchi. So Sanchi said, come here, I got a story to tell you. Mm -hmm. It's a great story. And we believe the story that Muhammad's showing you is the same one he saw in the temple of Nefru. I will tell you, but let me explain a few things first, and then I will show you uh, something else also, something important about the, also the story of creation. In this temple, we are going to see different type or different style of the word Stargate again, like this one. Okay, to make sure you understand that this is a Stargate. Okay, and that's where Mohammed starts getting into the Stargates, which we're not going into tonight. We've done a lot of things on Stargates uh, in the past, but that's not this evening. Okay, so Edfu. Uh, they, the immigration uh, depictions that Mohammed was talking about uh, has a lot of similarities to the Atlantis story. And where where we're going to be going to get some of this information from um is is from this uh book that's no longer in print the mythical origin of the egyptian temple by eve raymond so she was an egyptologist a long time ago this was uh this was printed back in the 60s i've been trying to dig it up um it's, it's hard to get a hold of it so i've i've taken snippets of it from other resources to, to help out with this. Uh, but basically, when we look at these depictions at Edfu, we see we see these boats, okay? And basically, what is, is going on here, um, you know, is the story of a cataclysm. And their survival of that. So... Uh, first, it's important to note that these texts at Edfu, and by the way, this is what Edfu looks like from, from the outside, because uh, I know I've just been kind of showing you photos of walls, but that's the, um, that's the exterior from the front. 
But uh, what's important to note about the Edfu texts is that they did not originate on the walls of this temple. What these are are copies of what is considered the most important parts of this story from a much larger archive of documents that actually existed at that time. So this is this is the Zeptepi story copied uh, from, and those documents uh, very well could have been on scrolls or papyrus, uh, which some of the papyrus, like the uh, uh, like the Turin scrolls, uh, you know, over three thousand years old, and that's a like a big king's list. Very, very fragile. They were only able to save fragments of it, but it's like that type of thing that they would have taken the original text, or I mean, that could have been a copy of a copy. We don't know, uh, but that was essentially put onto these walls, the important parts of the story. So these texts here describe an era in which the gods of Egypt, or otherwise known as the Netters, lived on a sacred island known as the homeland of the primeval ones. And at some point, a cataclysm of flood and fire destroyed the island and most of its inhabitants. Some survived, and set sail on their ships to wander the world and recreate their civilization. So you can see right there the whole idea of cataclysm, flood, fire. They're on an island, the island's destroyed, and there are survivors that uh, are sailing on a ship. So it's almost Atlantis plus Noah, right? Uh, I guess maybe without the animals, because I didn't see anything there about the animals. But, uh, but in any case, yes, very, very Atlantis-esque. So I'm going to quote you actually from her book here. And it, and it says, An ancient world, having been constituted, was destroyed. And as a dead world, it came to be the basis of a new period of creation, which at first was the recreation and resurrection of what once had existed in the past. So essentially, you have this massive cataclysm, destroys their civilization. There's a few survivors left, and they're trying to recreate. And you know, all that's all that they have left is whoever survived that, their knowledge still intact. Now, there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of know-how that would have been lost in that cataclysm. So this may be where um, you know some of the builders of those ancient buildings, you know, had been lost. You know, they, they, they may have just perished in, in the cataclysm. That happens. Uh, you know, you think about our civilization now, okay? Uh, if there is a sudden cataclysm, um, you know, you could say massive flood or, um, you know, we're suddenly thrust back into the Ice Age or even just like a basic like EMP uh, that annihilates all electrical components. Uh, and sends the world into chaos, uh, which many, many people would die in something like that. Um, the ones that are going to survive something like that are going to be the ones who know how to live off the land because you're not going to have grocery stores and things like that anymore. Uh, and those supplies will go quickly. Um, so it's going to be the ones that know how to survive off the land that will, that will make it. So, um, those guys that know how to build a cell phone or or code a computer or something like that, there might be a handful that know how to um, uh, grow a garden. There might be a handful that know how to you know actually hunt or something like that. Not too few or not too <laughs> not too many. I mean, uh, you know, some of your corporate bankers, many of your corporate bankers, um, you know, are, are not going to have that know how. But in any case. Um, yeah, so cell phones and computers and things like that, those, those would go by the wayside. They would fall into myth and lore and things like that, um, you know, because our, our technology, our way of living, it would be just completely annihilated at that point. We'd have to basically restart and go all the way back to the beginning. And that's what's happened here with Atlantis. 
So now the question becomes, okay, these, these texts, if these were copies, where did they originate from? Well, could have been at the library in Alexandria. Um, you know, this is something that would have existed around the time that Edfu was built. So those texts could have been at Alexandria. There's also the idea that it could have been at Heliopolis. Now, Heliopolis, which was the city of the sun, uh, there are some people that believe Heliopolis may have been the site of the great city of Atlantis, whether Atlantis was just a single city or whether it was a, uh, a massive culture with a capital. Uh, some do believe that Heliopolis would have been that capital. Now, you look at this illustration here, you're just really seeing a a single obelisk. You can actually see the you know the three pyramids of Giza way in the back there, and then just a couple other small ruins. Um, sad story with Heliopolis. There's not much left of it, and this was a you know, massive, massive uh, you know city for a long, long time in Egypt. And so, New York, London, Paris, they all have Rome. They all have these obelisks from Egypt, right? Where did they get them from? Most of them came from Heliopolis. So, um, which is kind of, it's pretty sad if you think about it. So at Heliopolis, if it was here, um, there's there's a couple of reasons why those, those texts may have been here. Uh, so English Egyptologist IES Edwards pointed out that Heliopolis was the site of the inventory building that had been a center of astronomical science closely connected to Giza. Of course, again, you see the, the pyramids back here uh, in, in the background. Sir Alan H. Gardner believed that the inventory building was some sort of archive in which Pharaoh Khufu was searching for information about the secret chambers of the primeval sanctuary of Thoth. And this is a depiction of Thoth from, um, uh, from Dendara, which absolutely beautiful temple. To support that, uh, the Westcar Papyrus, which dates to the Middle Kingdom, about 1650 BC, but was a copy from older source material, talked about a quote-unquote chest of flint hidden in Heliopolis, which contained a document which described the, again, quote-unquote, secret chamber of the sanctuary of Thoth, with Khufu, uh, which Khufu wanted to copy for his temple. So uh, Heliopolis had some... Uh, had some buildings or a building that would have housed some of this information or documentation or may have been some sort of secret archive. So you have Alexandria, you have Heliopolis. We also have uh, the Temple of Sace. Now, Sace is uh, pretty interesting. This is an artist's uh, interpretation of what it may have looked like. This is also another one of those locations that are just absolutely in ruins. Uh, this is an illustration from the 1840s, which you can really kind of barely see that there's any sort of a city uh, that had been here. And uh, this is today, which is just really the, um, you know, some foundation stones and things like that of, of some buildings of SACE. So uh, you know, this is really quite sad, uh, the, the state that this uh famous temple has become. And if you think about this, Library of Alexandria, Heliopolis, Temple of Sace, all of which housed important documents, completely obliterated, and we've lost most of that knowledge. So where Sace comes into play here is with Plato. Plato, of course, uh, you know, wrote the uh, Timaeus and Critias, which is where we get the Atlantis stories from, both of which are incomplete, unfortunately. Uh, over there on the left is his great uncle Solon. About 150 years uh, are between these two. But Plato uh, had the story passed down from Solon. Solon had received the story from Egyptian priests at the Temple of Sace. 
So there's, there's your connection. So according to Plutarch, uh, the priest that passed this down to Solon was identified as Sanchis. Now, scholars debate as to whether Sanchis really existed, but this is what Plutarch tells us about Solon. It says, near Nile's mouth, by fair Canopus shores, and spent some time in study with Sinophis of Heliopolis and Sanchis of Sais, the most learned of all the priests, from whom, as Plato says, getting knowledge of the Atlantic story, he put into a poem and proposed to bring it to the knowledge of the Greeks. So, of course, we're told through the retelling by Plato that the Atlantean Empire existed 9,000 years before Solon. So you kind of have to math that out a little bit uh, as far as when that would be. But basically, it puts it in that era of the Younger Dryas, of that moment where we have the cataclysm that was essentially felt around the world, you know, where we get all those, those flood stories. I think there's a comment or two in here. Um, yeah, Sarah asking, uh, was the was ancient Egypt lush, lush with vegetation? So ancient Egypt, I mean, for thousands of years, this is the way Egypt has worked. So the Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. And what happens is uh, the, and this is where uh, the summer solstice comes into play. So around June 21st, this is when the flood waters of the Nile come in and deposits this rich black soil. And this is what they end up growing their crops off of. And, um, and the, uh, the name Egypt is actually... Greek. Um, the Egyptians never called themselves Egyptians. They never called their land Egypt. They called it Kemet, which means the black land. And that's because of the soil from the Nile. And so all that area up and down the Nile was very, very rich. The Nile, again, was the lifeblood. Um, and it's it's kind of funny if um, if you're traveling up and down the Nile, and this is, this is what Muhammad had to say. He's like, all up and down the Nile, take a look. You have three colors, blue, green, yellow. <laughs> and so, yes, beyond, beyond that, it becomes the desert. Now, thousands of years ago, um, like, okay, about 10,000 years ago, uh, the climate in Egypt was very different. And yes, it did have more vegetation back then. They had... Uh, more animals, more livestock, uh, more greenery. And this is, we're not going to get into it, but that plays into the whole story of the dating of the Sphinx. But it was a, uh, a much more uh, lush area with good rainfall and, and things like that back then. It was a little bit of a sidebar there, but that's fine. This is an interactive class. So um, back to finishing up our story about Sace. Again, whether or not the figure of Sanchez existed, Solon at least spent times with the priests of the goddess Neith. Now, Neith was, uh, was a tutelary goddess of Sace. So basically, she was a guardian or protector of a particular place, and this, this had to be Sace. But she was also an early powerful Egyptian deity the goddess of creation. So she basically created the world according to, uh, according to the Egyptian mythology. So the Esna temple uh, records an account of creation in which Neith brings forth, brings forth the nun, the first land from the primeval water. So she would have been the one that created uh, the land that was destroyed that we, we talked about uh, when we were back there at, uh, at Edfu. So she created that land that was destroyed in that cataclysm that 
they fled from uh, you know, trying to find a, a new home and try to uh, resurrect their, their culture. So what's interesting uh, is, okay, so this is the uh, Temple of Vesna. And again, we're told that Neith brings forth the first land from the primeval waters. She's a creation goddess. And what we see at Esna are depictions of the raising of the temple. This is actually, uh, Johnny's pointing at levitation. And we see this at Edfu as well. So it, you see this constantly play out again and again and again. Uh, you know, some of the details have been lost to time, but this is at Esna. It's actually just in a little side room. But here's you know, the temple on the ground. And then we see the raising of the temple here uh, in the next freeze, which is exactly what we're seeing at Esna. So you have these connections of Sace with the, uh, with the goddess Neith to Esna. And then you're seeing the Esna depiction also played out there at Edfu, which is, again, that creation story, which goes back to Neith at the Temple of Sace. All right, everybody, have a good evening. Till next time, time really exists. <laughs>